We are not designed as women to be in full-blown ketosis forever because we are much more defensive of our fat stores. We are designed to have children. We are designed to breastfeed. We are designed to have a period every month. And even into menopause, we are going to, because of the hyperinsulinemia, much more defensive of our fat stores. We are not designed to be in ketosis forever. So I love to come up with like a cyclical keto where you are cycling up your fat intake. So you're still doing, there'll be uh, days or weeks where you are eating that classic Estima diet protocol, which is 70% fat, 20% protein, and then 10% carbohydrates. But then there'll be weeks where you'll cycle up your protein. So you will have higher protein intake. So you might cycle your proteins up from 20%. You might cycle them up to 35%, lower the fat, carbohydrates remain the same. And then there's going to be weeks where you might want to cycle up your carbohydrates strategically, uh, particularly if you're weight training. Uh, you'd be wanting to pair your heavier weight training or resistance training days on the, day, on the days or weeks where you're cycling up your protein and or the days where you're cycling up your carbohydrates. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today we have AMA number five with my co-host, Stephanie Major. Now I am going to be really honest and say that this is probably my favorite episode that I have ever done for the podcast and not trying to put any pressure on it, but uh, we really had a wonderful conversation. We were answering our questions from the community that come from our Facebook community, Better with Dr. Stephanie. And a lot of the questions were about menopause and what happens in menopause, how we can eat during menopause, how we can fast during menopause, how we can be training during menopause. So we answered all of those questions. And then there were some questions towards the end where we were talking about shadow work and the inner work that is necessary that I really think pushed it over the edge to being my favorite episode. I have never shared some of the things that I that I did. Um, so I am looking forward to hearing your reaction and uh, your response to it. And I wanted to highlight a member from the Estima Diet. So we talked about the Estima Diet in today's episode, and I wanted to share Maxine Lalande. She has been part of the Estima Diet for about a year, and she posted in our Facebook community, and I wanted to share it with you because it is just so lovely. It makes my heart sing, and I wanted to share this win for her win with you. So she posted this the other day, and she said, hey, tribe, guess what? For those who know me, it's time for my happy dance. I have been on this journey with Dr. Stephanie now for one year and I could not be happier. Here are my results. My total weight loss, 36 pounds. My waist is down 8.5 inches. My bust is down four inches and my hips are down 
six inches. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie, for all of your help and knowledge, but most of all, thank you for your love, care, and concern for each and every one of us. You truly are an amazing woman. And I wanted to highlight this because I realized, and even in our conversation today, as you'll see, I tend not to talk about my successes as much. And this is such a win. It's, it's not my success. I mean, Maxine did the work herself, so it is her success. But it is part of the reason why she is successful is because she has been following my protocols and uh, that I lay out in the Estima Diet. So I wanted to share that with you. You can find out more about the Estima Diet at www drstephanieestima.com. So without further ado, not going to not going to lie, this is uh I really opened up my heart here, but without further ado, please enjoy my wonderful soul loving conversation with Stephanie Major. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to AMA number 5 and I am joined with my partner in crime, Stephanie Squared, Miss Major, welcome back. I'm happy to be on the podcast. I'm just going to say it. I'm happy to be in your home right now. <laughs> <laughs> we have broken. We have finally ended the, we were separated for what, 10, 10 weeks? We, we, 10 we didn't weeks. see each other. We, we, we've been talking over Zoom, of course, mm -hmm. but um, I have just tired of this craziness. Um, and you and I, uh, have been both in quarantine for 10 weeks and we were like, you know what? We are not doing anything wrong by seeing each other. We're both not sick. We're both super healthy. We are mm -hmm. somewhat maintaining some social distance. Although yeah. there might've been a hug. Yeah. There might've been yeah. a long hug. It feels really good. Yeah, it man. feels really good to be around each other. Um, I think that there's been some amazing parts of the quarantine for sure. Like great books that I've read, great like spiritual awakenings, um, you know, some bonding time with my own children and, you know, a lot of self-reflection and stuff like that. But there has definitely been that, um, that, that longing to, to be around other humans, it's just that direct eye contact. Like you can't, you can't, Take that on a Zoom call. And physical touch, man. Like, yeah. you know, this is one of the things, uh, even in uh, when I was in chiropractic school, I remember, I forget what class it was. It might've been philosophy, but um, we were talking about the uh, effect of touch and you can heal something, like someone can get better. Someone can come and present. Like we had, the, I remember the teacher saying, uh, Dr. Kisslinger was his name. Uh, he would be like, you could have a patient come in and have back pain and you could be the worst doctor on the planet, the worst, not know where the, not know where the articulation, not know how to adjust the articulation, mm -hmm. not know how to set up properly, but the physical act of, or the human connection of physical touch is so healing in and of itself that your patient will get better just by touching them. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is like a bunch of horse shit. Like, come on, how can you have to know like the angle of the joint and the joint changes in the low spot and you have to be able to rotate it this way. But no, he's right. Like you, uh, he's absolutely right. We as humans are hardwired for good connection. We are hardwired for touch. I mean, you see this even in our children, right? Like we've talked, I don't know if we've talked about this uh, online before, but kids won't thrive. You know, you can like give them all the food, but if they're not hugged and cuddled and loved, they, they're, it's something called failure to thrive. And I think that that's 
true as an adult, man. And I was, I was almost not going to make it without your hug. So no, I know. <laughs> um, so even your son, your youngest oh God, son, Sammy. <laughs> he would come on our morning, like zoom, zoom calls. And he would say like, major, when am I going to see you again? Like, I miss you. And I would think, Oh, that's really sweet. And he's not going to do it the next day. He's a kid. He's now he's going to be off playing. And the next day, he would be back on the call saying, Major, I really miss you. And it kept happening every day. I'm like, oh, this isn't just a, it's nice to say to someone that's in your life. Like it's a true longing and calling in his heart to want to be close to me. And it just, yeah, yeah. It, it, that's deep love. Like that is, it's not, it doesn't go away. Time, like distance between it doesn't, doesn't make it fade. In fact, it made it even stronger. And to be able to be around him today and just around the whole family is really great. Oh, Sebi, yeah. I mean, he's such a special child, but he has been talking mm-hmm. about you nonstop. And it's interesting because he also reminds me of how difficult this has been on our children, right? Like they don't get to see, they see their friends on Zoom. I mean, their classmates on Zoom or whatever, but all playdates have been canceled. His cousins on, on his father's side, like he hasn't seen his cousins. He hasn't seen, you know, his aunts and uncles on that side. He hasn't seen his grandmother, you know? I mean, it's so hard for them. And, you know, while it's really hard for, it's been really hard for me, it's been really hard for the adults. I think we really... And your and your you know kids are in high school, right? So like mm-hmm. again, I don't uh, they're not in uh, graduating year, but like kids that have had prom or have had to yeah. miss prom, this is it's really hard for our kids. And I think, I mean, we can get into like the data and the weak data that there is to really continue the propagation of this lockdown and the you know risk versus uh, cost versus uh, risk. And I've you know, I've been telling you privately, and I'll say it here on the podcast that my opinion has really changed in terms of the the severity of the. It's still, it's still tragic. There's still a tragic mm-hmm. loss of life. There's still um, people that are really struggling. But what it appears to look like is a very bad flu, if not the worst flu, right, that we've ever mm-hmm. seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we look at, you know, deaths. From the flu, it's you know somewhere between. I mean, it has a huge um, range, but it's something like you know twenty thousand to sixty thousand deaths per year, and that's sort of the range that we're looking at for this. Mm. And while that's tragic, you know, it has put so many. There, there's so much more death that's going to happen from the economic in my like the infarct, <laughs> like the mm. cardiac arrest of the uh, of the economy. Um, and then, of course, some of the psychological issues that you and I have just talked about in terms of being apart from people that we love. I mean, Sebi's right. grandmother, like she's such a, I, I mean, she's my ex-mother-in-law or whatever, but I just adore her. I think she's such a wonderful human and she hasn't been able to see her grandkids and she's Greek. Um, and anyone that's listening that's Greek or Italian or Portuguese or, you know, anyone, any, any Indian, Jewish, like any culture that places a high priority on family. This has been devastating for them. Yeah, uh, and I think the people that I love or I'm really connected to, it's going to be easy to come back in to, to that. But yeah. there's definitely going to be this PTSD with people that I don't know because it's almost been burned into my brain now that humans are unsafe. They're diseased. People like, are dirty. Yeah. They're dirty. Yeah. 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 So it's really going to be an adjustment. Um, an adjustment period for people that I'm uh, haven't or for new letting new people into my life. I can say that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was going for um, a walk the other day. I, I had to just get out of the house and go for a walk and listen, like clear my head and listen to a podcast. And so I was kind of walking up and down my streets, you know, um, there was really no one there, but the, t- the times that there were, you know, people up ahead that would see me coming, you know, it's almost like, I'm just going to be polite and cross the street so that when we actually get close <laughs> enough to each other, we're, we're still maintaining social distance. And I, and I, remember like seeing people do that and being like guys like I mean I mean of course it was like it was done out of concern it wasn't like or maybe it was done out of fear I don't know but Mm -hmm. it's it's just so interesting the way the way that things have been hijacked and the way things have changed and I'm just I'm kind of over it okay well keeping in theme with the podcast better yes what has what has gotten better or what has improved for you during this time are there any positives that we can that we can touch on uh, yeah there are so many positives i think uh first and foremost letting go of the things that don't matter you know there used to be things that i like couldn't live without like i had to have my um i mean i still think that these are important practices but i had to have my massage every such such and such a time or um, had to go and get my nails done, you know, and these, it's like, okay, I can do my own nails. I can learn how to do my own stuff. So letting, letting go of the air quotes, necessity, things that I thought that I could never live without, um, mm-hmm. becoming more self-sufficient. And then I also think the bonding with my children. So my kids have been, they go to a wonderful school and their school has been really great about like they're on their little Zoom calls and like they're doing like math and they're doing culture and language and whatever, you know, all that stuff. But my, I have had to sit down now with my sons and do long division. And I have had to help my little son work on his, you know, penmanship and work on his, you know, writing skills or whatever. And it's just been, yes, it's been difficult. I've, I haven't been able to participate in as many. We were just talking about this kind of before we started. I haven't been able to participate in, you know, some of Giovanni's um, uh, company in, in, in his, like some of the events and stuff that he has been running because I've been with the kids, but it's also been a really wonderful reconnection with my children. And it's been great to be able to be a teacher in a different way for them. Yeah. So that would be like my one, two things, like letting go of the stuff that doesn't really matter. Um, doubling down on my relationship with my children. And even in terms of work, in terms of the things that I've, like, I'm little misachiever, right? Like, let, let me just punch out this and this and this and um, getting back to basics. Like, what's the one thing I want to achieve now in the 90 days, in the next, in the next quarter? What's the one thing, not like the seven things, the one thing. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I feel like I've had many. I've been doing um, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of work on ego, a lot of work on trying to shed roles that I play in life and instead just coming back to really being myself. Mm. But I had this great thought where it's been a pattern in my life that when something like a crisis has happened or something very scary or new or or um, that made me feel feel fearful, I've really questioned and ran away from stuff in my life. Like, oh, maybe these aren't the right friends for me. I've left relationships. I've uh, moved countries. I've moved cities. I've, you know, I've always felt that whenever something has happened, I've, it's made me question what's around my life. And this is the first time in my life that 
something like this has happened and I'm like, I'm in the exact place that I want to be when a crisis happens. I have the right people in my life to support me and keep me motivated and keep me moving forward. I'm in the right job. I'm working for the right company. Um, even just being around the entrepreneurial space and the way that I've seen them be creative and step up and pivot and be brave and be leaders is just so inspiring to me that it's, it's really nice to, to look at your life and go, I'm in the right place to handle anything that could happen around me. That's so poetic. I love that. Yeah. And and I think there's also been, you know, I've had very similar to add on to that, to piggyback mm-hmm. on that. I was, me and Giovanni went for a walk. It was probably like a week or two ago now. And mm-hmm. I remember expressing to him, like, I was so nervous about releasing, you know, a certain podcast and like a certain, it, you know, it doesn't matter who it was or what it was about, but I was like, I was so nervous and it was so well received. And I was like, you know, I am just so tired of, and it's not, it's not external. It's an, it's an, it's an internally applied filter where I think I have to be someone. I think I have to talk a certain way, be a certain way, you know, um, have a certain amount of status or whatever it is. And, and I felt, and I find myself or I have found myself mm-hmm. filtering what I should I should say it like this. I should do that. I should, 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 should. Mm-hmm. And I remember going on this walk and I'm like, you know what? I'm so tired of that. I'm so tired of shooting all over myself <laughs> that I'm just going to, I'm just going to be myself and it's going to repel, you know, a certain person and that's fine. And it's, but it's also going to tether me to the people that are like, yeah, that's like me, like, you know, and, and, and hopefully be through my, just, you know, the courage of being myself just encourage other people to do the same. You know, we used to joke that we could get through anything together because we've been through so, you know, we've just been through class. everything together. <laughs> been through, no, we everything. can say worldwide <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> That's added to the list. <laughs> so we've been through fire. Yeah. Floods. Floods. So my clinic burned down. I don't know if anybody knows yeah. this, but my clinic burned down uh, in 2016, rebuilt the clinic, built my dream clinic, it flooded. I don't know how many freaking yeah. times we would bring those chiropractic tables to the waiting room because the back of the clinic was completely filled with water. Um, divorce, relationships divorce. ending, oh, like just yes, everything. everything. And a worldwide pandemic. And a so. worldwide pandemic. So. The locusts are next. <laughs> Yes. Oh, no. Even if they come, we both cares. don't do well with bugs, so that yeah. might be the one thing. <laughs> that is probably the only thing that will make me stay indoors. <laughs> All right. So, what do you think? Should we get to these amazing questions? I'm yeah. really excited about the ones that we have today. Yeah, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So, um, the first one says, "Hey, two Stephanies. Hope you're holding up all right in isolation." We have been. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I'm menopausal, almost 55, and been eating vegetarian keto for over a year. Now doing cyclical keto as per Dr. Joseph Mercola's recommendations. And I'm wondering what your views are on special considerations for menopausal bodies, hormones, exercise, while following a ketogenic way of eating. I'm not on hormone replacement therapy and don't want to be if I can avoid it. Hopefully there are others in your audience for whom a discussion of this combination of factors would be of interest. Thanks for all the info, particularly with the female perspective highlighted. Oh, what a good question. Okay. So 
couple of things I want to talk about with menopause. And this is a thing that comes up a lot in my, whenever I give online webinars in the Estima Diet, which is an online program that I run where people are either perimenopausal. So there's a kind of a unique, which we'll talk a little bit about, uh, can, like there's sort of two distinct stages in perimenopause. But then when you are menopausal, of course, that is another unique hormonal landscape and hormonal environment. And when we think about menopausal women, typically what we hear, some of their main concerns are, are an increase in central obesity. So weight gain through the abdomen. Mm. Uh, insulin resistance is another big one. And we'll talk about why that happens. Dyslipidemia, which is just a fancy way of saying that your lipids go a little bit wacky. So your triglycerides, your LDLs, LDL particle, HDL, all, you know, all those things tend to become a little more dysregulated. Mm -hmm. So these are all things that really are associated with metabolic syndrome. So when we think about metabolic syndrome, it actually has those criteria, right? So there's an increase in obesity, increased uh, hyperinsulinemia and increased dyslipidemia. So when we think about why that is true for a woman in menopause, mm -hmm. normally when a woman is, uh, you know, in her, we'll call it in her fertile years, so when she's having a period or should be having a period uh, monthly, estrogen levels are going to direct fat to be deposited in the hips, uh, in the thigh area, in the bum area. This is like the, you know, women are always like, I need to lose weight in my hips and my thighs and my lower tummy. Yeah. Um, and this is why when women gain weight, it tends to be in the, in the lower half of the body or that, you know, that pear shape that people mm -hmm. kind of want to try and avoid. But when estrogen levels decrease, especially during, you know, late stage perimenopause, so kind of in your late forties and then through menopause in your fifties, the fat storage is now going to move towards the abdomen. And unlike the subcutaneous fat, so we all have fat that just sits right under the skin. Um, that's stored in your hips and your thighs, this visceral fat um, doesn't just affect obviously the way that you look, but it also now affects your, um, uh, it's going to be strongly resisted, uh, strongly, pardon me, strongly associated with cardiovascular uh, issues. So heart disease, um, insulin resistance, and other, and sort of all the problems that we've been, we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So for a woman like her, um, I want to say a couple of things. Um, one, your estrogen levels influence your insulin sensitivity. So as your estrogen levels go down in menopause, your insulin insensitivity is going to go up, meaning just naturally as we go into menopause, we are going to become more um, insulinemic and we are also going to be hungrier. So the mm. hormone that's associated with uh, feeling hungry. It's a hormone called ghrelin. So just think of um, a gremlin because it sounds like ghrelin in your stomach. That's where the hormone is secreted from. Um, that is going to increase in late stage perimenopause and of course into menopause as well. And then lastly, double, or I'll say there's like a couple more things. Um, low estrogen levels in late perimenopause and in menopause also impair leptin. So I talk about leptin a lot. Uh, this is going to be a big chapter in the book that I'm writing around females and leptin insensitivity. So leptin is the hormone that makes you put down your fork. <laughs> it's yeah. basically the hormone that tells you that you're full. Mm -hmm. And for women, irrespective of hormonal status, we tend to be more leptin insensitive, meaning we need to secrete more leptin 
Leptin is the thing that's like, stop eating. So we need to secrete more leptin from our fat tissue because that's where it's secreted from in order to get our brain to be like, huh, I might be full. So what happens is in order to get that signal through, we have to secrete more leptin. And how do we do that? We have to put on more fat because the more fat, more adipose tissue you have, the more leptin you can secrete. And guess what happens when we have more uh, fat? Of course, we're gaining weight and we're not happy about it. Mm-hmm. So as we go into peri, uh, part, late stage perimenopause and menopause, our leptin signaling becomes more dysregulated, which sucks. And then of course, that's going to lead to weight gain. And then the final piece of it, which is again, part of the, part of the book that I'm going to be writing is this idea or that I am writing and it's just birthing this book baby has been, anyway, it's a topic for another time, but I want I, like the loss of muscle mass. Um, that occurs during perimenopause and just the general aging process because women are not lifting heavy weights. We are scared of heavy weights for whatever reason, which is going to be my life's work to try and debunk and to get women lifting heavy. Um, we will lose that lean muscle mass into menopause and that is going to slow down our metabolism. It's going to make us more intolerant to consuming carbohydrates and of course making it much more easier to put on weight. Hmm. So all of that consider like that's sort of the hormonal physiological landscape of menopause kind of, you know, I've, I've, you know, you've, I've painted some or talked about some high level things. Of course, I, you know, we can do a deep dive into this uh, and I will be doing a deep dive in the book, but for a woman who wants to do keto in menopause, I think it is a great idea, a great, it's a fabulous idea because we want to get her hyperinsulinemia under control because she's naturally, because that estrogen is being uh, destroyed or the, she's not going to have as much estradiol, that E2, she, mm-hmm. she's going to be naturally more insulin insensitive. So one of the best ways to sensitize or resensitize your cells is going to be reducing your carbohydrates because carbohydrates are broken down into glucose and glucose, the hormonal response to glucose is insulin. So when we are restricting our carbohydrates, we are therefore going to be seeing a drop in insulin and that is going to allow our cells to be sensitized to insulin for the next time that we do have a carbohydrate. So, you know, this is basically the Estima diet, right? This is like what we talk about in the Estima diet, where we want to get you into nutritional ketosis first, which is uh, in the program, it's a 28 day protocol to get you into ketosis. And then uh, that would be my first preference for her. And then after that, to start thinking about how she can cycle the keto, because women are not even though I am a huge proponent of the ketogenic diet, I've been running an online program for, I don't know how many years now, major four-ish, four, yeah, something like that. We are not designed as women to be in full-blown ketosis forever. Um, We are designed, because we are, because we have the, we are much more defensive of our fat stores. We are designed to have children. We are designed to breastfeed. We are designed to have a period every month. And even into menopause, we are going to, because of the hyperinsulinemia, much more defensive of our fat stores. We are not designed to be in ketosis forever. So I love to come up with like a cyclical keto where um, you are cycling up your fat intake. So you're still doing, there'll be uh, days or weeks where you are eating that classic Estima diet protocol, which is 70% fat, 20% protein, and then 10% carbohydrates. But then there'll be weeks where you'll cycle up your protein. So you will have higher protein intake. So you might, 
cycle your proteins up from 20%, you might cycle them up to 35%, lower the fat, carbohydrates remain the same. Um, and then there's going to be weeks where you might want to cycle up your carbohydrates strategically, uh, particularly if you are uh, if you are weight training, uh, you'd be wanting to pair your heavier day, like your heavier um, weight training or resistance training days on the day on the days or weeks where you're cycling up your protein and or the days where you're cycling up your carbohydrates. So um, a cycling up of your protein might look like 55% fat, 35% uh, protein, and then. 10% carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, higher carbs would be 60, 20, 20. I like 60, 20, 20 quite a bit for uh, my menopausal women. So I like that in terms of the chemical uh, part of her healing. And in terms of exercise, when you are in menopause, and if I can get you before menopause, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I will, there is no m- more important time for you to be lifting weights none. Um, preferably before, uh, because it increases your, like, you know, I don't know if many people know this, but the more muscle mass you have, the more carbs you can eat because your muscles will just gobble that up as food. Mm -hmm. But what we want to be thinking about, particularly as women, as we age is through menopause, there is a natural loss in lean muscle mass. And as you lose muscle mass, you will become relatively fatter. And what I mean by that, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, I just mean that the relative proportion of adipose tissue that you have is going to be higher because your lean muscle mass is attenuated. So we want to be always thinking about how we can drive something called muscle protein synthesis or MPS for short. Muscle protein synthesis simply means the synthesizing of new muscles or new muscle, like the proteins that, that, uh, that um, contribute to muscles. And we do this two ways. One is through our diet. So we've talked about like kind of the cycling up and down of the protein. When you are eating protein, you're always like protein is in every single cell of the body. So we need to have protein. Um, That's one way to stimulate MPS. And you need about two to two and a half grams of leucine, which is an amino acid to drive MPS. If you're a meat eater or you're having protein powder, that's about 20 to 25 grams of whey. Uh, protein powder or a 20 20 to 25 gram, you know, um, you know, if you're having chicken thighs or breasts, or you're having filet mignon meat or pork, whatever, whatever it is that you're eating. If you are someone who's vegetarian, um, typically vegetarian protein sources are quite poor in their leucine content. So you'll need more. So just, you know, factoring in your caloric intake, typically like with a pea protein or rice protein or, um, uh, even uh, what's the other one that's really popular? Soy, uh, soy protein. You'll probably need around 40 grams. So just think about like the increased uh, calories that you're going to be taking in during that time. But you need about two to two and a half grams of leucine through through your chemical through your diet. So that's one way. The other way is through exercising. So you can provide a mechanical stimulus to drive MPS through lifting heavy weights. And you do not have enough testosterone, even if you wanted to look like the Hulk to look like the Hulk. You cannot look, and I get this all the time. Like, I don't want to be, be bulky. I want to be toned, which, um, as someone who works a lot with the nervous system, it, you know, I always kind of, I'm like, what do you mean tone? Like tone is like a neurological mm-hmm. uh, qualifier, like high tone, low tone, hypertonic, hypotonic, mm-hmm. uh, axial tone, appendicular tone, etc. But I, un- I understand what you're saying when you say tone. It's like, you want to look fit, right? But you don't want to look like 
you are a bodybuilder. And I assure you, I lift heavy weights. Sometimes I approximate what Giovanni can um, lift and bench press and squat. And there's no way that I'll ever look like him because I don't have the amount of testosterone that he does. He has about 10x the testosterone that I do. Um, and, and so the only way you can ever look like that is if you have exogenous testosterone that you're taking, like you're taking TRT or you're taking something else. Mm-hmm. So ladies, don't be afraid of lifting heavy. Just do it. Uh, because you run the risk when we grow older of this sarcopenic obesity, which is what I described before, which is the loss of muscle mass. So you're relatively more uh, obese. You relatively have more adipose tissue. And of course, your muscles and your bones are really closely related to each other, right? The more lean muscle mass you have, the better, the denser and thicker your bones are. And of course, we know the bones are your framework. They are the back, they're the wah-wah, they're the backbone, right, mm-hmm. of your health. If you lose your spine or you fall down and you break your hip, um, you're either going to be put in a nursing home or, you know, this is like the biggest thing where we think about like what takes out independence, what, what, kills longevity in women and men is a fall, right? Because they've lost the muscle mass. Their bones are frail. The proprioception from their joints is shit. And then they, fa- pardon me, Oops. <laughs> uh, this will have an E beside it. So it's, it's, it's um, you know, they've lost all position sense and then they break their hip. And of course, not many, it's, it's hard to operate on it, a lot of times people will say we just have to leave the hip broken because the the operation is can be far more lethal than having the broken hip. So lift the weights. You know, one of the tests that I do for my my private one on one clients is I get them to do a wall sit. And we used to do this when we were in the clinic, right? And we would do we'd say, all you need is a wall. Just get your butt like slide down on the wall. Pretend like you are sitting on a chair, but there's no chair. And how long can you stay there? right? General rule of thumb is we want to have you over a minute and a half, over 90 seconds. Very rare would it be that women could do that, as you remember. Yes. I I love when I hear you speak like this because I think my perception of getting older when I, when I was younger was, okay, once you're 50, it's time to be an older woman. You're just going to sit in your chair. You're going to do crosswords, which yes, I do. And I will always do, Mm -hmm. but I love the way you're speaking because no, it's not the time. Like, yes, you're in your fifties, but it's not time to be sitting down and being quote unquote old. This is the time to lift heavy, to keep feeding your body, to keep loving yourself and to keep holding on to that vitality. And I, I love that. I giving you permission. It's the time to do a Super Bowl halftime show. Yes. Like, you know, if you think about, if you think about all the energy that you dedicate for 30, 40 years to, to be producing this baby every month, now all that energy when you go into menopause can be used for something else. You can, you can drive it into your own health parameters so yes, it's not the time. I mean, I will, I actually want to take up knitting. I want to learn how to knit, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to lift heavy. I'll still, I can still squat my kids. My, my nine-year-old is my kettlebell. He's my kitty bell. Yeah. I saw him squatting and doing uh, push-ups this morning. So that's yeah. Impressive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you have anything to add or do you want me to go on to the next question? 
No, I mean, that's, that's really it. We just want to be, you know, when we think about, and just I'll, quickly from the, from the perspective of the spine, we think about osteoblastic versus osteoclastic activity. That's the only other thing I want to, so whenever you are weightlifting, you are, um, this is a trophic signal. This is a growth signal to your muscles and your bones and your bones, little pe- not too many people know this. I, I remember when I would say this in clinic, people like, ah, like our bones regenerate, but yeah, there's something called osteo meaning bone blastic or growth. Uh, so we have osteoblastic activity where we are putting on uh, weight, if you will, or we are making our bones denser. There's growth that's happening. And then there's osteoclastic. So clastic is the breakdown of bone. And this osteo, we want to, with muscle, with, you know, um, resistance training and doing calisthenics and even just using your own body weight, what you are doing is you're getting ahead of that osteoclastic activity. You are stimulating your bones to repair and regenerate themselves. So you are... um, so your blastic activity is outperforming your clastic activity is kind of what I'm after there in terms of your spinal and your muscle health. And it's, it's same is true for like there's myoblastic and myoclastic activity as well. Amazing. Okay. So Nadia asks, is high cortisol secretion from the adrenal glands related to menopause? Um, it's a good question. I would say that I don't think that that's – I mean, a lot of women – have what I would call chronic low-grade inflammation or chronic low-grade stress. Mm -hmm. So in menopause, if you think about, you know, the typical age when a woman is going to go through menopause, somewhere between 49 and 52, kind of depending on when mom, like when her mother or grandmother went through menopause. Um, So if she's already kind of in this state of chronic low-grade inflammation, going through menopause is going to be exacerbated for her. So the hyperinsulinemia, the dyslipidemia that we talked about before, those things will be amplified. Mm -hmm. However, I think that there is a, I think we're all too quick as healthcare practitioners in general to blame our adrenals for everything. It's like, it's not your adrenals. You know, when we think about you know, what a woman is going through in menopause, it's low energy levels, it's brain fog, it's muscle weakness, it's reduced exercise capacity, it's chronic tiredness and and the susceptibility to weight gain. So we've been, all the things that we've been talking about into, into, you know, the nutritional and the physical stimulus that you can do to help uh, mitigate those symptoms. The other thing that we want to be thinking about is this whole energy depletion is also going to be related to mitochondrial dysfunction. And we talked a little bit about, we did a big uh, podcast a while back, you and I, on t- uh, talking about cortisol because it's such a big topic. But what we know about estrogen in particular as it relates to mitochondrial function is that it there is a regulatory effect that estradiol, so E2, um, plays in terms of mitochondrial function. So things like creating uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, which is the creation of new mitochondria, um, calcium regulation, ATP production, which is your energy, ATP is like your energy that the, the, the mitochondria produce energy all every single second of every single day. And what they produce is something called ATP or adenosine triphosphate. So E2 or estradiol regulates that. And even though it's, it's still poorly understood, we know that when your estrogen levels are going to be decreasing, that is also going to necessarily impact mitochondrial function. So when you are inflamed, so if you have had 
if you're someone who's going through menopause, you're call it 50 years old, uh, you've had one, two or more children, you've gone through pregnancy, breastfeeding, raising that child, you know, and if you're 50, you know, maybe they're in their teens or their twenties at this point. Uh, so you've been through all the trials and tribulations of parenting mm-hmm. and the sleep deprivation that goes along with it. Of course, I would argue that most women are chronically inflamed until proven otherwise. And when you are inflamed, that switches the way that you produce your energy. So we typically, the, the most abundant way to produce energy is in the mitochondria. It's something called oxidative phosphorylation or oxfos is, you know, what the cool kids say. Um, but you go from oxfos to a, you're still producing ATP, you're still producing energy, but you move it to this less efficient way, which is called aerobic uh, glycolysis. And what happens there is, of course, you increase inflammation again. So if you are, if I'm bringing you nightmares from your high school biology, I apologize, but aerobic glycolysis is going to increase reactive oxygen species. It's going to reduce your insulin sensitivity again. So we keep kind of coming back to this idea that insulin sensitivity is really important for a woman in menopause, both because naturally uh, decreasing levels of estrogen are going to increase her insensitivity, but also because of uh, at the root, we're talking also about mitochondrial dysfunction. And of course, when you are more insulin insensitive, the glucose that you are, let's say you're having carbohydrates from the diet transformed into glucose, you're going to have higher glucose availability in the plasma, but not in the cell. And that's going to, of course, reduce your cellular um, energy. So we want to also be thinking about proxies for improving mitochondrial function. Even just very simple things like taking a cold shower and not the whole, it doesn't have to be the whole shower. It doesn't have to be the whole shower, but you can have a beautiful, warm, luxurious, you know, warm shower, warm, um, you know, as hot as you want. And then just like the last minute, just turn off all the heat just for one minute. That in and of itself is going to activate sirtuin, you know, uh, sirtuin activity. It is going to increase mitochondrial biogenesis. So anything cold, the other, on the other flip side of that, of course, anything hot is also like excessive heat, like in saunas. We know that saunas are also really, really great for, um, uh, for activating, uh, for sirtuin activation and improving mitochondrial efficiency as well. And of course, reducing again, uh, things like fasting, we, which we've talked about many times, really, really great for mitochondrial uh, biogenesis, a ketogenic diet, in my opinion, is also really great for improving your energy. I mean, how many women, you can tell, I mean, you don't have to hear it from me, but like the women in the Estima diet are always like, I can't believe how much energy I have. Is this normal? Like, I feel like I, anyone, like there was someone who uh, commented the other week, she was like, anyone want me to come and clean their house? Like I have so much energy. I don't know what to do with it. I was like, yeah, come over here. Yes. <laughs> come over here. Um, so to like the, the short answer here is cortisol, Probably, but it's not the. It's I'm. I'm. Um. I don't want to blame cortisol all the time, right? Cortisol is. It, it's cortisol is part of a bigger picture, which is sympathetic dominance, which is chronic low grade inflammation. We want to be thinking about mitochondrial function. So building your base at the cell, um, which is things we've been talking about, like the cold showers, the heat, the ketogenic diet, the estima diet, if that's something that's, um, you know, you're interested in or fasting or partaking in that, those things are going to really help um, your energy levels as well and reducing inflammation in the body. Perfect. Okay. Let's move on to Jacqueline. 
classic question, how in the world to stop eating after 7.30 p.m.? I'm good with fasting and working at home and helping the kids with e-learning, homeschooling. And then the minute I sit down on the couch to watch something on the TV, that is when the hunger starts. I am on my bleed week, so I want to get a good 24-hour fast in, but just can't. The most I can get is 18, which I will applaud you for, 18. Good for you. Help me, Dr. Stephanie and Dr. Major. You are my only hope. Star Wars reference, if you didn't get it. We definitely (laughs) got the reference. Um, I will see your Star Wars reference and I will raise you another Star Wars reference, which is, I can't do the voice, but do or not do. There is no try. So for me, um, and I'll, 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 I'll punt this over to you too, Major, but I'll also say, first, I know she's a client of mine because she used the term bleed week. I always talk about yeah. it that way. I'm yeah. always like, in the bleed week. And I've, there's been a couple of podcasts I've been on and they're, they're almost like shocked. And it's like, what's happening? Like, that's, what, that's when you bleed. Like, whatever. Anyway, so no, she's a client of mine because she used the word bleed week. But I would say um, there's just a conscious decision that you have to make here. And I understand how stressed you are because I too, Jacqueline, am homeschooling. I have said this before. I am an unqualified homeschool teacher. Um, I have definitely, um, uh, it's definitely been a learning experience and a surrender to that, which um, (laughs) I had no skills before, but I'm slowly getting better at being a teacher to my children. Um, I would say the, right now, especially because of this, uh, pandemic and because of the the amount of stress that most people, this collective, uh, what I think is going to be PTSD, I would not be going for a 24-hour fast at this point. Like 24-hour fast would be the absolute Most, yeah. maximum. And even then, uh, you know, that she's able to punch out 18 hours, like good on you, girl. Like that is a long time to go without food, especially when we are so stressed right now. Mm-hmm. So I would just say, don't worry about, you are just doing an excellent job. If I can give you some suggestions, it would be instead of plopping down on the couch. And then of course your brain is a very associative organ. organ. It's like, oh, I'm on the couch. Maybe it's time for wine. Um, or maybe it's time for, you know, maybe it's time for snacking or whatever. I would definitely um, try to move her eating window earlier so that she starts eating earlier in the day and she's cutting off her food earlier in the night. And that is going to help her circadian rhythm. So it's going to help with her stress levels. Naturally, we're a little bit more insulin sensitive in the morning. So um, if you're eating at 12, maybe you want to pull it back a little bit, like come eating at 11 or 10 in the morning, and then you can finish at about, you know, if it's 10, you'd be finishing at six. If you're doing a 16, eight, Mm -hmm. Um, I would do that. Or um, maybe you can go for a walk in the evening. You know, like instead of, you know, 7.30, you know, sitting down and being like, okay, like I want to eat now, going for a walk, oxygenating your body, you know, and this is of course, again, another way to honor your circadian biology, because we know that our oxygen levels dip as the day goes on. And of course, that's really important for us overnight. And of course, right now when we're thinking, when we're hearing about all this oxygen, you know, destruction or whatever with, um, uh, with the virus, it's important to get out and oxygenate your body, particularly in the evening. So I would go for, I would go for a walk um, with your, did she say she has a son? What is she? Uh, yeah, she does. Cause she, kids. Kids. Okay. So kids, the kitties go for a walk with the kitties in the evening. Uh, that will also help you get more general movement in, which is also super important. 
This is what I was thinking too, because she's talking all day about giving to others. You know, she's teaching, she's, she's working from home, she's giving. Mm. I'm wondering if at 7.30 p.m., it's, her, it's now her time and it's her time to feed herself, to nourish herself, but maybe she's taking it in a very literal sense with feeding. Yeah. But what about thinking about giving back to herself or feeding herself or nourishing herself in a different way. Like this is your time. What do you want to do with it? Maybe there's a hobby that you love. Maybe there's a, a, a meditation practice that you want to start. Like think of yourself and how you want to feed yourself at those times. The other thing I was thinking is, is 7.30 really that late? What if she forgave herself for the 7.30? I guess it depends on what time she goes to bed. Yeah, but maybe. what if she allowed herself to eat something super nutritious at 7.30, as long as it was a couple hours before bedtime. Yeah. It didn't have that guilt behind it. So then it didn't feel like, well, I've already had one thing that's bad for me. So, you know, it kind of gets that ball rolling of the, um, of the eating later at night. Well, I mean, let's, let's just, can we get an amen? Because, you know, I think that you know, you can, there's two, there's two ways that we can approach this. And I love the suggestion major. So we can, bring her eating window early, like earlier up in the day. So she's more full. That's one way. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. other way would be just what you suggested would be to bring the eating window later in the day so that she is able to eat at 730 without the guilt. And the only caveat there is just that circadian biology alignment. If you're eating your last meal at 730, then going to bed at 930 or 10, if that's when she's going to bed, is completely appropriate because you're still allowing for the stomach to empty. The stomach fully emptied and sort of the digestive process is about two to three hours. So this is why we, we want, whenever I'm talking about fasting, a time-restricted eating, I always talk about a night limiter, meaning that we will stop eating two to three hours before bed. And that's precisely why, so that we can get a better sleep and you are not now lying vertical, allowing there to be reflux or acid from the stomach, you know, coming up through the sphincter and into the esophagus um, and then causing heartburn and, and GERD and all this kind of stuff. So I, 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 I'm fine with either of those options for her. I think those both would be really great. And I like you know, maybe there's like a walk in the evening, like we were talking about, maybe she's going to nourish herself other ways like meditation. Maybe she'll do her nails. Maybe she'll, you know, take a long soak with some Epsom, Epsom salt. You know, there's so many different ways that she can feed her soul uh, mm -hmm. and feed herself um, and not beat herself up about it. I mean, this is a tough time, man. It's tough. Yeah. yeah. I love that she called me Dr. Major, but I have to say that I'm about, I'm the same type of doctor as Dr. Seuss. So... <laughs> Red fish, blue fish, one fish. That's the type of doctor I am. Yeah. Um, Talking rhyme. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> here's a question from Jen. Single mama parenting tips while living like this. I am trialing essential service childcare next week and super worried about the risk of exposing my son to others that may be asymptomatic. How can I let go of some of this anxiety? I'm Ziva meditating. Yes, go girl. Yes. Practicing 5 a.m. method from Robin Sharma, but love my glass of wine when, once my son is sleeping. Should I just stop having wine? Ways to reduce this instilled fear-based anxiety, please and thank you, Stephanie Squared. Stephanie Squared. That's our couple, that's our couple name. That's like our <laughs> 
you're my plus one. You're my, you're my little two <laughs> above the E. Um, so much in this, this question. What do you want to start with? Do you want to, you want to start, you want to start this? I can start too. I'll start with this. I'll start with the single, the mom part, because I, that is, that's me. I'm a solo parent. Um, have my children hundred percent of the time. Um, there's a lot of forgiving that's going on, forgiving them, forgiving myself. There's a lot of different things that normally we wouldn't do. And and I'll say one of them is, um, I I live in Toronto. I live in a two bedroom apartment. The girls share a room. So what's been happening lately is my youngest daughter has almost turned the living room into her space. And uh, my oldest daughter, Jade has her room. And then I have my room and then like the kitchen dining room, my office space is more of a shared space, but it's been really important that we've kind of defined these little areas that are only ours because we're spending so much time inside. So it's been really helpful for Haley to have her own space in the living room, which would, I would never really norm normally allow. Um, so I think it's just forget a lot of forgiveness, a lot of permission for things that are working that you might normally not tell, tell yourself, oh, we shouldn't be doing this. But if they're working and they're making it a more cohesive, loving space, then I think that then that works for you and that you should allow that. And it doesn't have to be what works for another family. That's what's working for you. So good job. I know it's hard, but we're all going to get through this and you just do the best. If you do, if you're always doing the best that you can, then, then you can never be disappointed in your actions. And if you try something and it doesn't work, come from it from a different angle. Um, My kids have been, their sleep pattern. They, teenagers truly are nocturnal. They, they love to be up so much later and get up later. And I've allowed that, but that is something, I don't know if you can talk about that a little bit, like on another podcast, because I'm very interested in this, but they have more energy now that they're going to bed, what feels right to them and waking up later. They have more energy. Both my children are, they're working out They're Um, they're just livelier, which, which is blowing my mind a little bit, but, um, yeah. So those are my, those are my parenting things. It's just a lot of forgiveness, forgiving yourself, forgiving them, move on. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think in terms of the anxiety, I think that, you know, she can rest assured that this is a collective, um, anxiety that I think we all fear. And the problem, I mean, the, I, it's it's such it's such a complicated talk. I mean, we're talking a little bit about this at the top of the podcast. I mean, mm-hmm. I when this whole thing started, I was like, oh, whatever, coronavirus. It's named after a beer, wah wah, whatever. And then, you know, sort of March, you know, end of February, March, I was like, okay, what the hell is going on in China? And I was reading the I was reading the models that were being uh, proposed, like millions of Americans and Canadians and this was going to be this contagion and this apocalyptic um, event. And I did a podcast about it. I started getting, uh, and I've had lots of experts uh, in terms of mindset to help people through it. And of course I still stand by everything that, mm-hmm. um, that we talked about, but my opinion on the severity of the coronavirus has changed quite a bit actually. And it started, I started questioning what was going on when they just couldn't seem to roll out the tests. Like I didn't understand 
the tests that they were like the delay in the testing and then the tests once they had them the sensitivity and the specificity of the tests uh, which is basically the amount of false positives and false negatives and the ability to actually detect the virus itself there was a lot of questions around that um, and then when we look at the the people who are dying unfortunately who are and, and this is and I'm, I, I should also preface this by saying like this is not that I, I'm not saying that it is not important mm-hmm. of course it is loss of life any time is important but it also is worth mentioning that the people who are succumbing to this are the people who would succumb to the flu that came, would have succumbed to the flu last year or the year before. So it tends to be the elderly. It tends to be people who already have one or two or three uh, morbid, comorbidities. So when we look at the data from Italy, um, one, you know, the area in, uh, in and around Milan Uh, This is like the industrial center of the country, very poor air quality, uh, number one. Number two, the population in Italy is much older. And number three, the people who are succumbing to it already tended to have things like cardiovascular disease, um, hypertension, they were obese. So when we think about the people who are susceptible, it's the same people who would have been susceptible at any given time. It's not that everyone is susceptible to it. And of course, there's always going to be outliers. Like I, you know, you can, mm-hmm. you know, write me and say, well, there's such and such this 30 year old. And I'm, of course, there's always outliers with everything. But as a general rule, it, what it looks like is this is a very bad flu, if not one of the worst flu seasons that we've ever seen, but it is that it is the flu, uh, in my opinion. And I have lost confidence in the the numbers, even the numbers themselves. Like we, I don't know what the actual numbers are because we've heard so many medical doctors talking about this pressure to put the disease on the death certificate when there may have been other, like if someone presented with, let's call it, I don't know, uh, some cardiovascular disease or late stage lung cancer. And they tested positive for the virus, you know, they're dying with the virus, but not necessarily from it, which is a big important distinction. And I think that there's been a narrative that is that we've been seeing more and more of where medical doctors are saying, why are we being asked to put the the cause of death as COVID-19 rather than, you know, stage four lung cancer or whatever it is. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm I'm questioning the the motives uh, right now. I think that it is. Um, so back to, so back to her question around the anxiety. Yeah. I think that her now more than ever, so I don't know her health history. I don't know, but if there is a time to, to double and triple down on your health, it would be right now. If yeah. you are obese, if you have dyslipidemia, if you are going into menopause and you are, you know, thinking that you have hyperinsulinemia, the way that we've been talking about, join a program like mine, join the Estima diet or another one that fits your fancy, right? Like another, something mm-hmm. that aligns with your, um, uh, your philosophy around nutrition and food, get your hypercholesterolemia under control, you know, eat healthy fats, stop eating processed crap. And I know that this can come across as like, I'm not, I'm not a political person. Like I don't know I don't know anything about politics, so I'm not even going to pretend that I do. But 
And I know that food and nutrition can sometimes be very political. Like, don't you take away my rights to eat my double stuffed Oreos? And I am not. You are able to do what it is that you please. But if you are concerned about your health, at least temporarily suspend that narrative around it's my right to be obese mm-hmm. and think about how you can create more physiological resilience through nutrition and some of the other things that we've been talking about today, like emotional and mental resilience through things like meditation, because that has been, I mean, I have struggled. I, I'm in the spirit of openness and honesty. Like there have been times where I have just been, I have cried from me feeling like I was failing my kids. I was like, I cannot teach. I do not know how to teach long division. I do not know how to do this. Um, And I have cried and I have felt frustrated for the people that have lost so like economic devastation. Um, I've had people email me from all over the world, say that they're depressed and they don't know what to do and they feel hopeless. So I have, I have felt all of that. Um, But the thing that has saved me is my adherence to the way I eat, the adherence to the way that I move. I have doubled down on my weight training, my resistance training, my cardiovascular training. Um, I have started dancing even more because as a woman, I think it's really important for you to access the power in your hips. And I have meditated. And oh, have I gone on journeys on my meditations. I have been on, you know, I always talk about geeky magic carpet rides. These have just been like beautiful, like rides through space and time and into my hips and out. And um, so that would be my recommendation for her is to release the anxiety and to double down on her, on some of the health, on some of the foundational basics that cannot be irrefutable. Like you cannot refute by science, getting sunshine, getting sleep, moving your body, eating in a way that your cells require and expect, and and not 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 um, punching yourself, not not harassing yourself in your mind. Right. Kind. Okay. Yeah. She asked us about the wine, so I think we need to. Oh, the wine. Give her, yeah. give her our opinion. Okay. So, I do not see any benefit of having wine ever. <laughs> <You'll miss it. laughs> and that's it. That's it. I'm, I, and I am going to piss off the wine aficionados, the sommeliers that are listening, but I, I'm sorry, I don't. And you can't tell me about the French paradox. You can't say to me, well, what about the French? They eat cheese and they have wine. No, they, the amount you know, and, and the, the argument is always, well, there's like in the red wine, there's like this resveratrol, which is a potent um, sirtuin activation. It's helped, it, you know, it helps activate longevity genes and the amount of wine that you need to consume in order to have a clinically significant amount of resveratrol to activate CERT1, the sirtuin activation, you'd be drinking barrels of wine. Take a, take a supplement, get resveratrol, take it in a supplement form, have it with some fat. The other, the other kicker, of course, is resveratrol. You need to have it in the presence of fat. So, you know, have it with some, you know, your fatty coffee or something in the morning. But um, the red wine is liquid sugar, in my opinion, very quickly absorbed, very quickly turned into glucose, very quickly will shoot your insulin up through the roof. 
uh, is going to contribute to the things that we've been talking about today, hyperinsulinemia, uh, dyslipidemia, of course, as well, because what we know around dis- the, the higher your simple carbohydrate intake, the more triglycerides your liver is going to punch out. And we all, we, we've been told for years, like, no, you got to reduce your cholesterol, reduce your fat. Horseshit. It's the it's the carbohydrate count. It's the amount of carbohydrates that cause an increase in your triglyceride output, uh, which then leads to these very low density lipoproteins, etc., which are highly oxidized um, in the blood. So I would say reduce, take out the wine, Jen. Sorry, yeah. love you. Coming for Don't me, I me. I've been someone who has been a social drinker and drank on you know in relationships or on dates, and I've never felt more emotionally, mentally, physically. Um, healthy as when I've stopped drinking. Like I just can't even see a time in my life where it'll it'll come back again. And you know, there's something about the timing, that evening time, of that little like n- like that little numbing act, where maybe there's something that she needs to be feeling at that time. Maybe she does need a little bit of self reflection on the day, and just just try it. Try without that wine and kind of sit a little bit with what is that feeling from the day? What are you trying to release? There are so many other beautiful ways to release that. And I actually think our next question, um, this will lead into our next question really well. Yeah. If you'll allow me to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go there. This This is from Mel. So could you do a deep dive into shadow work? It's something I keep hearing about and would love to do on my own, but don't know where to start. Maybe you could suggest some good resources you used to start yours. Mm. And I'm going to remind you that we pinky promised at the beginning, before this podcast, that we would be open (laughs) and share and be vulnerable for this question. Squeak. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yes, I can share some things that have helped me. Let's just start by saying bravo. Even getting to the point where you're willing to admit that there are shadows is an amazing, you're on the right path. So yes. good. So, and I did this for years where I would pretend that nothing was wrong or I was, or I could just shove it down far enough in my body that I would never have to deal with it. And of course, you know, it's so naive because it's, it's like ever present. Like it, it shapes your filters. It shapes the way you view people. It shapes the way you connect with people. It shapes the way you think about yourself. Um, so yeah, bravo for asking this question. And, um, I will, because you have been so courageous in asking, I will be courageous in answering it. And I'll, I can tell you about what has worked and what has not worked for me. So I tried uh, talk therapy uh, for a while. It was really around, you know, my own childhood experiences. Um, I've mentioned sort of briefly here and there on the podcast that, you know, my upbringing was like, you know, not the most calm and stressful. There was a lot of physical violence, a lot of emotional uh, violence as well. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways, uh, and this is actually going to come up. Uh, I I was um, I was on a friend's podcast. Um, I don't know when he's going to release it, but um, he's such a good interviewer, David uh, Nagel, and he just like got the whole story out of me. And I was completely not willing to go. Like I didn't think I was going to go there, and then completely went there. So um, I, I'll share it for my reader. I'll share it for everyone when when it comes out. But I had a really traumatic. I would call it very traumatic upbringing um, in many ways. And of course, 
the, the, you know, the idea around sharing that is not to say that it's everyone else's fault and not mine. Um, mm-hmm. My parents were just doing to, to me what was done to them and they were, they were repeating unconscious patterns and um, doing the best with the tools that they had. They just didn't have many tools. Okay. So I'll just, I'll just say that like I absolve them of, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not saying like, you know, they beat me up and like, I'm okay with that. Of course I'm not. Um, because there was many times where I was left with many bruises and lots of scars and, and, and blood and stuff. But, um, so I used to try and forget it and it turned me into like this ultra achieving maniac. So I went from kind of being like a B student to like an A plus student. Um, I was a maniac in university, uh, mm-hmm. always on the Dean's list. Uh, always an A plus student. If I got an A, the internal narrative was like, you are such uh, insert, you know, not good enough something here. So what I discovered um, relatively recently um, was, and that, and it's, and I'll just, I'll, before I say it, I'll, I'll also just say that it's not just the intervention, it's the work that happened afterwards. Right. So um I tried um, MDMA. They are studying it as a um, proxy for uh, treatment-resistant depression for PTSD. Uh, both both things. Like I I I have uh, PTSD. I think from my from my past, mm-hmm. and the experiences have been just lots and lots of tears lots and lots of physical release, like a lot of physical release in, in my body. Uh, so like a lot of shaking, like literally I would be just shaking and shaking for hours on end. Um, but if you read books like uh, The Body Always Keeps Score or, I mean, have you, have you read that book? It's like, God, it was just every, like he was talking about like Vietnam veterans. I was like, no, this is actually like, this is my childhood. Like I was like, I lived in the Vietnam war at home. Um, anyway, so lots and lots of shaking, but as you will learn, um, or if you choose to learn, uh, you'll know that that somatic release is, is your nervous system, like getting it out of your nervous system. Right. So that, and then of course the, what's followed that is the integration. So the journaling and the, the ability to be quiet. So you said something about like, she may feel that need in the previous question, the woman may, might need feel the need to numb. And I've always made this observation in clinical practice that the as the night approaches, our anxiety levels get higher and higher because you're just left with your own thoughts. And we're so afraid to feel our feelings that we will do things like eat or numb with alcohol because we just don't want to sit with our own stuff. So that's been that's been something that has been a growth tool for me, which has been to be able to sit with my own feelings and to be able to sit with the, you know, first it's kind of anger and rage. And then once you peel that away, it's like fear and scared and loss and the feeling of being heartbroken mm-hmm. um, and being able to s- sit with feeling heartbroken. <sighs> yeah. So, um, so that's been really useful for me. So it's, it's sort of, that's been like a, um, and Gabor Mate, who I am going to try my very hardest to get on this podcast. Cause I, he talks a lot about the value of psychedelics in opening up that portal to the self and that his definition of trauma, um, as actually, and Nicole LaPera, who is coming on the podcast, uh, we are going to talk about this as well, 
I can't, I can't wait for my conversation with her, but this, this expansion of the word. So, you know, we think about the word, we think about trauma and we think about what I've just, what I've described, like physical abuse, which is what I endured, or uh, others may talk about sexual um, abuse or emotional abuse. But the other, the other ways that we are traumatized as children is not feeling seen or heard or understood or not, you know, having to change who we are to get love and acceptance from our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and David Nagel and I talked about this on a couple of podcast episodes. He's been on, he talks about like up until age seven, we are just taking in, you know, whatever our parents think we, you know, should be our cultural norms. And this is all unconscious. So, um, so psychedelics have been helpful, very helpful for me just to a, just to admit that things are not okay in my body and that I've been running away from my body for a long time. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's been helpful for me is meditation. And you and I were talking just a little bit about this in the pre-chat and I definitely want, I want you to, I want you to talk about the importance of silent meditations Mm -hmm. because I have found when I do silent meditations, I get into my hips. I get into this, um, creative power source. And it's like, it, it's in my, I, I want to call it like Kundalini awakening. There's some energetic, there's like a ball of energy that sits in my pelvis um, that moves a lot. It moves a lot when I'm meditating and I feel it kind of moving up the spine, um, which actually you're going to help me with after this session, because I was telling you the other day, um, I, I think I have some blockages in my solar plexus and you can maybe explain what that is, but like it, my energy kind of stops right here. And I feel like I want to vomit, um, when I'm doing like really deep meditation, but, um, so meditation has been really helpful for me. And then doing things like acting, even just doing, even just talking about this is, is a, is a way for me to elicit trust in myself because so many times as a clinician, as a mother, I would just be like, that's your problem. You know what you need to do? You need to meditate. Do you know what you need to do? You need to do exercise. You know what you need? Like I am so good at doling out prescriptions for other people Mm -hmm. and thinking that somehow, because I understand the science that I am above it, like a fool, (laughs) like the, you know, like this hubris that the allopathic, like any healthcare professional has because we understand shit. We're like, we're above it. So um, just understanding that I too am human. I too make errors. I too am a scared little girl who's afraid of being abandoned and just wants to fit in somewhere. Just accepting that and, and saying that's actually like baby Steffi's just, just wants love. Like I just want someone to love me and tell me that I'm perfect just the way that I am. I'm so proud of you. That's a be- that's such a beautiful share. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to say that the MDMA that you did was in a clinical, clinical oh, yeah. setting. Yes. Yes. It was with, yeah. it was with therapists. It was done in the way that the maps, um, protocol is being, uh, studied. Oh my God, my eyes, I'm like, I'm tearing up. Yeah. Um, so it's been, it's, it's done with two facilitators who are watching me. So I'm not, it's not just like, Hey, I'm on ecstasy and I'm like dancing. To, mm-hmm. It's rave music. It's it's done in a therapeutic way. And I will also say that the intention, you know, the set and the setting are very important. So the the intention that you have going in 
uh, to a session like that around saying like, yes, okay, there is a problem and I am going to go into it and I am going to process it is important. And of course the setting is important. It's not at a rave. It's, it's at a clinician. It's, you know, with clinicians. So yeah. Mm -hmm. My shadow work. Well, I think a big part of it was coming, having a better relationship with emotions because I very much assigned emotions as good, good emotions, bad emotions. And any of the emotions that I thought were bad, I immediately felt shame for feeling them, tried to turn them off, tried to switch to what I felt was a good emotion. Uh, and that comes from just being in, an, in, in a family that didn't feel comfortable expressing emotions, didn't... Uh, didn't want to um, face them, deal with them. They made them uncomfortable. So, you know, if I, as long as I switched back to the good emotion, it kept peace at home. So I think now um, in my adulthood, not running from the bad emotion, letting myself feel it, letting myself process it, um, not feeling shame for feeling it, and, and realizing that there's a purpose for all the emotions that we feel. And that if you're ignoring the ones that don't feel quite as good, then you're just closing yourself off to a whole other side of possibility. So that's been a big one for me instead of running away. And, you know, I was really good at being like, I'm so positive. I'm really good at switching my feelings. I'm so good at self, you know, self-care. It was just my ego saying, you know, I can self-care my way out of feeling something uncomfortable. But even those self-care methods were a way of running away from them. So. Now, part of my self-care is really checking in with myself. Um, so the meditation thing that you brought up, I had a meditation practice. I was meditating every day, felt very proud of it, um, was getting my Reiki training. And the, tra the, the, the Reiki master asked me about my meditation practice. And I very like proudly said, I meditate every day. And she said, okay, great. Well, what is your practice? So I said, well, you know, I, do, I love guided meditations. I, I love Sam Harris. I listen to this. I do this every day. I'm Michael Seeley, all of this stuff. And she was like, okay, great. When do you meditate in silence? And I said, never. And she's like, well, why? And like inside, you know, if I look, you listen to that heart center. I, because the silence is deafening. <laughs> That's <I'm> why. <laughs> because it's scary in there. Because yeah. I might hear something that I'm yeah. feel uncomfortable hearing. So she really encouraged me to start having these silent meditations. And what it means is laying there and really going into your body and saying, what do I feel right now? What are my thoughts? Where do I feel tension? And the hardest thing ever, but it's like the most miraculous thing is feeling that tension somewhere, going to it and saying, why am I feeling this? And if you are brave enough and courageous enough to ask yourself that, it's going to tell you. It's going to come up. Mm -hmm. And you might cry, and you might feel terrible, and you might have memories that come back that feel awful, but it doesn't last. It comes out. And if you ask it to come out and you ask it to, to come out, it will. So I think that's been a big part of what I do now is really sitting, sitting with myself in true silence and saying, what's going on? And you know how good you feel after a good cry? Especially those cries. Like there's nothing better than that inner child pain being released. Like it feels... It hurts so good. It just hurts. It hurts so good. So good. Yeah. I love, I mean, I, 
even though the process of processing that processing that emotion can be exhausting Mm -hmm. afterwards, it's like, I feel like I've shed five pounds of stuff. Yeah. Um, it feels so good. If you feel lighter, you feel cleaner, it's cleaner. And I, um, after the session, um, at some point today, I want you to do a Reiki session. I mean, we'll talk about it on the next AMA because, mm-hmm. and you can maybe briefly talk about the solar plexus and maybe, you know, what we'll do, we'll save this for the next AMA. Because yeah, let's do that. I, let's, let's talk about each of the, each of the chakras. This was something again, little miss science. I was like, this is garbage. There's no, there's no RCT for the solar plexus chakra or the root chakra, blah, blah, blah. But then I'm try- I'm having these kundalini experiences where this energy is trying to flow up and it's getting stuck at my solar plexus. And like I was saying to you, vomit. I wanted to vomit. Like it was so gross. So anyway, we will leave it on that cliffhanger yeah. uh, for next time. But I think these have been just wonderful questions. And I am so happy that we got a chance to go through these questions to serve our community. And if you want to be, if you want us to be feeling questions, uh, your questions, you can join our Facebook group, right? So it's just the better, just look up on Facebook better with Dr. Stephanie. That's where we get all of our questions from. And um, yeah, any final, wait, wait, any final I, have, I do, I do. Cause I have access to you all the time. I'm the most blessed human on this planet for having access to you, but I need to tell, like, how can other people get access to you? How can they have a piece of, of what I have? Because it's absolutely beautiful and life-changing. So I'm giving you the platform right now on your podcast to tell people that if they want to work with you in some capacity, what does that, what does that look like? What are, what are the possibilities? Well, there's, there's two ways. So one, there's the online program that we run. It's called the Estima Diet, mm-hmm. um, which is, in my opinion, the best program on the planet. It is the last online program that anybody will ever need because we take you through a 28-day nutritional uh, ketosis, like getting you into ketosis to deal with some of the things we've been talking about today. And then it's not just, it doesn't just end there. So then we're like, okay, so now you're done there. So now let's get you into cycling the keto. Let's get you into how we can heal your hormones. So we talk about a, a couple of different hormonal silos. So we talk about uh, chronic low-grade inflammation. We talk about PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, estrogen dominance. And there's a Facebook group. I'm in there all the time. Um, so that's one way that you can uh, work with me. It's in a group format. And you can also work with me one-on-one. So there are women and men that want to work with me one-on-one. So they get access to me all hours of the day, all hours, you know, uh, they can text me, they can ask me questions. And in that, um, we're calling it, uh, informally, we're calling it Leader Labs. So, uh, so Leader Labs works off of three things, fuel, so it's your food, fitness, which is a customized um, exercise and uh, uh, rehab, mobility and postural retraining protocols, and then frameworks around mindset. So some of the things we've been talking about today around working on shadow work and getting our mindset right, establishing rhythms. So that's um, another way that people can work with me. So if you if that's if that's something that is appealing, you can email us at support at drstephanieestima.com. So D-R-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-S-T-I-M-A.com. And just put luminous in the 
uh, subject so that my my team knows to forward that over to me. And then you and I can have a conversation around whether or not that's it's the right thing for you. I love that. I love the Esteema group. There are so many people that are, we have to start doing shout outs on, on these podcasts for some people in that group because they are doing amazing things. They are bettering, bettering. Is that, is they are bettering. They are, bettering. they are bettering. leveling up. Yeah. So, um, you know what I'll do? There's one that I actually, that just came in yesterday. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to read this one out for the, for the, in the intro. So I'll do this in the intro. So it's right at the top of the, of the podcast. So we Perfect. Can I know who it is. It's yeah. a great chair. I'm yeah. looking forward to, I'm, I can't wait to re-listen to this podcast. I think we just got into some pretty good stuff and thank you Man, so much. For this is my me. favorite one. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.